Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that you're here this morning. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you're able to join us as well. And those of you in the Crosspoint Center, we're so excited to be opening that back up, particularly at this hour. This is the opportunity for those who are masked only to be able to meet in that opportunity to continue to worship together. So we're so glad that you all are here this morning. Now, if if you've been around for any time in America, you know that America has gone through a number of changes throughout our history. Some of us are old enough to be able to pinpoint some of those changes that has happened and some really drastic changes that have happened over the last 30, 40, even 50 years. Now, if you think about the stages that America has gone through since her foundation, there have been a number of different worldviews that America has operated by. America began with a Christian worldview as built on Christian principles as we look at our founding fathers and we hear some of the principles that were laid there. But even before them, the Mayflower Compact, which you will not read in any history books today, was the commitment that they would do two things, to find a civil government and to start a new government and also to evangelize this new nation. And so it was clearly built on Christian principles. But then after World War II, it moved from a Christian worldview to what's called a Judeo-Christian worldview, where there was some principles of Old Testament and Judaism that is all rowed together. But then after that, there is what's known as the postmodern worldview. And the postmodern worldview began to emerge in the mid-20th century through a man by the name of Immanuel Kant, who began to push back on philosophies and history and questioned a number of things about authorities. And then we move from a postmodern worldview to where we are today, which is called a post-Christian worldview. Now, a worldview is very important because a worldview always drives how we live our lives, where we spend our money, how do we think, and how do we act. Now, when the postmodern worldview began to be developed, there was a major question that was asked during this worldview. Immanuel Kant began to push back, and he began to question authority, began to question history, began to question the tenets of Christianity. And the number one question in postmodernism is is it true? Is it true? Can it be reliable? Is it something that we can rest in? And is it something that that we can depend upon? And so all the tenets of Christianity were began to be questioned. Are the tenets of Christianity true? Is the historicity of Jesus true? Is the historicity of the church true? And so they began to push back so much on this issue of is it true that they moved to the point where they discovered that there is no absolute truth and there's nothing that can be experienced through what we consider moral truth. So they developed moral relativism where everybody's truth is their own. And so for the last many generations, we've seen this question, is it true? But now we're living in a culture that doesn't ask the question, is it true? The question that is asked today in this post-Christian worldview is, is it real? Is it real? Does it change my life? Does it impact the way I live? Does it impact the decisions that I make? How is this information real to my life? And is it a reality? Now, 
What the reason that pushback has become so hard is because that there are many Christians for many years that talked about this is true. This is true. These are the things we believe. These are the things that we hold to. These are the things that we affirm. But here's the problem. While they were claiming the, the truth that these things we affirm to be true, there was no spiritual reality in their lives. In other words, we say these things are true, but this is how we live our lives. And our lives were lived so differently from the things that we claim to be true that people began to push back on the questions. Now, it's one thing to hold that something is historically true, but it's altogether different if there is no spiritual reality in my life on what I claim to be true. If I claim Christ is true, then does my life match my claims? If I claim the word of God is authoritative, does it have authority in my life? If I claim to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, am I submitting to His power in my life daily? So the question comes, is it true? And where we find ourselves today is a pushback on the church in America because they've heard all the things that we believe. But they don't see a change in the lives of those who claim that to be true. We've been studying the book of Amos for the last couple of weeks, and you might ask, what does this have to do with the book of Amos? It has everything to do with the book of Amos. Because this is where the people of Israel were. You see, they were the people who understood truth. They're the ones who proclaimed truth. They're the ones who went and worshipped every opportunity that they could. They were the ones who sacrificed on the altars of God. Yet the people looking at their lives saw that what they claimed to be true and what was real in their lives were disconnected. And what God does as a result of that, he brings this charge against the people of Israel. Now, we began two weeks ago looking at the book of Amos, and we discovered that it was written in 750 B.C. That's 2,770 years ago. But what we find happening in the culture in Amos' day is the same thing that's happening in our day. Just as there are many people who are just like those people in Amos, in our churches today, oh, we hold to the historicity of truth. But is there spiritual reality in our lives? Open your Bibles this morning to Amos chapter 3. This is where we are. We come to the first sermon that Amos preaches. And so far, what we've seen is chapter 1, we've seen Amos the man we discovered that he was not a professional prophet. He was a, he was a businessman. He was a cattleman. He was a shepherd. He was a picker of figs. And yet God uses this ordinary man from an obscure place to bring his message to the people of God. His mission was to go up north to Israel. At that time, the nation of Israel was divided into two countries. Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Amos is from the south. He's called to go up north and to preach against the sins of the people of Israel. And the message of the book is a call for restoration. We title it A Roar to Restore. And all through the book, we see God calling his people back to a place of restoration with him. And all through the book, we see an incredible picture of God's grace. 
And as Matt said last week, we looked at the nations that were surrounding Israel, and God was bringing his judgment to these six nations. And what God was doing was drawing a dartboard around all the nations, but the bullseye was the people of God. Because as they stood and pointed a finger at everybody else's atrocity, God was pointing his dart at their own heart. And so last week we saw that God does not want us to be able to condemn those around us, especially when he's speaking the truth to us. But in chapter 3 today, I've titled this message, Great Privilege Requires Great Responsibility. And Amos breaks the chapter down into three ways. First, he talks about the privilege, the privileges of the faithful. Then he begins, he brings out the problems with unfaithfulness. And then he goes to the punishment for the unfaithful. It's kind of a gloomy chapter, but it's very practical because as Amos records these words by the Holy Spirit, for those people 2,700 years ago, those messages are as applicable today for us in 2020. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break it down into the three sections, and then we're going to have some practical application at the end. So here's where Amos begins. He begins with the privileges of the faithful. He wants to remind the people of Israel who they are in God and the wonderful privileges that they have been granted by a sovereign God. And in verses 1 and 2, he lays them out. Here's how he says it. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. He says, hey, this isn't from me. This is from God. So the same is true this morning. This is not from me. We're reading God's inspired word. So let's hear what God has to say to people at Scotts Hill in 2020. He says, oh, people of Israel, against the whole family, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. In this passage, he gives us four privileges that the people of God have that no other nation at that point had. And he lays out these four privileges because he wants to remind them of who they are in their relationship with the holy God. So what he says, he, first he says that you have election. Number one, you have election. He says, only you have I chosen. Of all the people of the land, God put his favor on Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, we find that God is saying to the nation of Israel, he says that I have chosen you, not because you are the greatest, but you're the least. I have chosen you, not because you have more skills, but you have the least. I have chosen you because I have chosen to put my favor on you. All the other nations that exist, I have not chosen to be my own. So we find a picture of God's sovereign grace and his sovereign love over the nation of Israel. More than any other nation, they were the ones who were elected by God and belonged to him. But not only do we see election in that, we see adoption. We see this concept of adoption. He says, O people of Israel, and the Hebrew literally means O sons of Israel, O daughters of Israel. You see, God has not only chosen them as his nation, but he adopted them to be his children. And by the choice of God, and when he adopts them, he becomes their father. 
And he loves them like a father. He cares for them like a father. He watches over them as a father would watch over his own children. They are adopted and they are part of the family of God. No other nation had had that privilege. Thirdly, he redeemed them. There is redemption. He says, the people that I brought up out of Egypt, they were there in Egypt for 430 years. And God in his sovereign grace brought those people up out of Egypt, his own. He delivered them. He set them free from bondage. And they were his. Now, it's one thing to be elected. It's one thing to be adopted. It's another thing to be redeemed. But then he adds this fourth thing, communion. You alone have I known. The word known in the Hebrew is the strongest word for an intimate relationship between two people. That God has known them. He has moved into a relationship with them. He knows their hearts. He knows their passions. He knows their desires. No other nation has God opened his own heart up to like the people of Israel. And he says, you guys are incredibly privileged. Do you not know the position that you have? Of all of the other nations, every person I have given a conscience to, and they know right and wrong, but you, I have revealed myself to you. But you, I have poured my grace on you. But you, I have redeemed you and set you free. But you, you alone, have an intimate relationship with the one who has created everyone. This is an incredible privilege that you have. Now God says the same thing to the people, his church, today. We have an incredible privilege with the holy God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Listen to the very same language that he uses about those who belong to Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Do you hear those four words? That for those who belong to Christ, every single person who names the name of Jesus, God chose you in him before the foundations of the world. Before you ever existed, before you had a breath, God set his love on you from eternity past. But not only has he chosen you, he has adopted you. He has brought you into his family. You're a member of the family of God. Of all the families that you can participate in, there's none quite like the family of God. He has chosen you. He has adopted you, brought you. He is your father. Thirdly, he's redeemed you. From the work of Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood, he paid the penalty for your sins and he set you free from every single bondage imaginable. And he has communion with you. Through his forgiveness, you have a relationship with a holy God. 
You are privileged. You have a great privilege as a child of God. And what should this privilege create in us? It should never create pride. It should stir humility. We've done nothing to deserve it. It doesn't create works. It's only by unmerited favor, by His grace. It brings about full acceptance because He has adopted me into His family and He set me free. Every single person who is a child of God has this fourfold privilege. We hear a lot today about privileges, don't we? This has nothing to do with white privilege. It has nothing to do with black privilege. It has nothing to do with brown privilege. It has nothing to do with the privilege of any person from any heritage or race. This has everything to do with divine privilege and the amazing grace of God. Because in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. In Christ the ground is level and no one is taller than anyone else at the foot of the cross. That's the privilege you have. Amos is reminding them of who they are in God. And he wants them to remember that when there comes great privilege, there is great responsibility. So he lays out the privilege. And God reminds us through this passage of the privilege we have as children of God in a relationship with him. And it's an incredible privilege. It should drive me to a place of absolute worship because I deserve none of it. Okay, so he lays out the privilege for the faithful. But here's the second thing he talks about. The problem with unfaithfulness. Now, this is kind of a heavy topic because in verse 2, here's what he says to them. Even though you're privileged, even though you have all of these things, therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Now, he uses this word, iniquities. He only uses it here in the book of Amos. And this word, iniquities, is pretty powerful. Now, in our culture, a lot of us, we don't understand all the difference between certain phrases in the Scripture. And we often talk about sin. Sometimes we talk about transgression. Sometimes we talk about iniquities. And sometimes we just kind of bunch them all together. But each one has a different meaning. And each one leads you through a progression of something that's not good. So let me give you the three biblical words when it talks about sin. First of all, sin just simply means missing the mark. Every one of us sins. Without fail. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is missing the mark. It's a picture of a person aiming at a target and missing the bullseye. Every one of us will stumble in sin. Every one of us will think in terms of sin. We all have that, that, that propensity because we have a sinful nature. So sin, general sense, is missing the mark. But the second word for sin is transgression. It goes a little deeper. Transgression is crossing a known boundary. It's when I know that there's a boundary there and I choose to walk across it. It's like a fence that says no trespassing, but you climb over it. It's like a sign on a wall that says wet paint, do not touch, and you always touch it. Because it's a known boundary. Sometimes we cross boundaries and we don't even know that that boundary is there. But it is crossing a known boundary. That is transgression. 
Now, it's one thing to sin. It's one thing to walk across a known boundary. But iniquity is altogether different. Iniquity is a premeditated choice to continue in sin without repentance. It is a premeditated choice where I am going to walk in sin and I'm going to keep doing it and I'm not going to repent from it. And when I begin to do that, then I become like the people of Israel. Because the people in Amos' day were the people who had great privileges. They had the truth, but there was no spiritual reality. They were not walking according to the truth, but they were walking in iniquities. They were premeditating their lives in disobedience towards God, and they would not confess or acknowledge that what they were doing was sinful. In the midst of this, it grieves the heart of God because of the privileges that he's poured out on his people. I've given you all these things, and you're going to walk in ingratitude. I've given you all these things. I have set my love upon you, and you're going to reject my very grace, and you're not going to ask for forgiveness. You're going to walk by truth, but not spiritual reality. Let me tell you three things about sin that we need to know from this passage. Number one, sin is desperately serious to God. Sin is desperately serious to God, whether it's for an unbeliever or a believer, but particularly for a believer. When you're a child of God and you're walking in His grace and His freedom and His forgiveness and communion with Him, when you sin against Him willfully, you grieve the heart of your Father. Because he loves you so much. And because he loves you so much, he is your heavenly father. And it grieves his heart when you sin against him. Many years ago, we lived in Oakvale. And um, next door to our house was a man with two boys. It was a single dad and two boys. And I would watch those boys in the daytime. Their dad would be at work. They'd come home from school. They'd take care of themselves. And they would get out in the yard. And every day they would get in a fight together. And, you know, I'm watching these boys fight. And I know I'm not their dad. I don't have the authority to speak into their life. But one time I did. I thought, you know, I can't let these guys keep fighting. So I yelled at them. I said, hey, boys, y'all really need to stop all that fighting. And one of them responded back said, you ain't my daddy. And I thought, fine, just go ahead and kill yourselves. I don't care. I didn't say that, but I did think it. But why didn't I correct him? I'm not their dad. But when my kids, Ron and Leslie, would get in an argument and they would fight, it would grieve my heart because I am their father. And when I watched them living in such a way that it was contrary to the heart of our home, it broke my heart. And let me tell you, whether you're a believer or not, your sin is a serious offense before a holy God. And it breaks his heart as your father. It is desperately serious to him. And we can't just blow it off and say, well, you know, it's really not a bother to me. But it is to him. And when you and I continue to walk in sin, continued sin will develop spiritual complacency. When we keep walking in this sin, we become spiritually complacent. 
And we no longer care about pleasing the heart of the Father. We no longer care about a passion for His Word. We no longer care about a passion for truth. We no longer care about the principles of righteousness. We no longer care about holiness. We get to a place where we presume on the grace of God in the midst of our sin. That's what the people of Israel did. Was it true? Yeah. Was it real? No. And there was no spiritual reality in their lives. And they developed spiritual complacency. They probably thought, hey, we don't need to worry about holiness because God is a covenant-keeping God and He is obligated to love us. We don't have to worry about righteousness because our God is going to continue to take care of us because we're the people of God, right? We don't have to worry about authentic worship because we can just do our ritual things and God should be happy that we at least are giving him some attention. Spiritual complacency. What's it look like in our lives? Well, it's really simple to detect. Let me give you a few statements that people use and you can always tell that they're spiritually complacent. You know what? I've prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. My sins are forgiven. I can do what I want. Spiritual complacency. You know what? I'm just going to walk by grace because I'm covered by the grace of God and God is obligated to forgive me because I've been washed with the blood of Jesus, right? Spiritual complacency. You know what? I don't really need to go to worship. I don't need to be with God's people. I can worship anywhere I want to be. You know what? I really don't need to have a quiet time. It's not all that important. Besides, I can just listen to K-Love or family radio. Spiritual complacency. And when spiritual complacency becomes a part of our lives, we lose our desire to please God. We lose our passion for the things of God. And we lose sight of our purpose in serving God. I'm just going to speak for a few moments candidly, okay? As if I haven't been. <sighs> During this whole COVID situation, our lives have been upended, hasn't it? I mean, six months ago, who would have thought of all of this? And so much of our life has changed. And so much of our life has become digital because of it. When COVID first hit, we did everything we could as a church to try to stay connected to our people and keep our people connected to God through worship and the study of God's Word. So we went online, and I thought we did a pretty good job. We did everything online, from children's ministry, student ministry, to Sunday morning. As soon as we could gather back together, we made a commitment to gather back, and we would practice social distancing in the midst of all this, and you're experiencing that today. And so as we did that, we did everything we knew we could do. Then we began to add our children's ministry. Then we added our student ministry. Then we added all of the different ministries that we're slowly bringing back together. We have even offered a mask-only service at 11 o'clock in the Cross Point Center because we want to regather our people. Here's our goal. Our goal is to help our people to understand that no digital format can ever replace corporate fellowship and worship. It cannot. And it will never do it. And while some people have some legitimate concerns about health and safety. Those of you who are at home, who can be here, but you've chosen the comfort of your living room 
over the corporate gathering of God's people or stepping into a place that can be potentially complacent. You see, I, I, know, I know where you are. I see your Instagram. I see where you are. And as a pastor, I'm speaking with a concerned heart to regather and join God's people. Because here's the danger. If you're staying at home just for the comfort of a living room, you're teaching your children that corporate worship is not important. And you're teaching your children that they can develop a heart of complacency rather than gathering with the people of God. Now let me just say this, just because you're in this room, you're not off the hook. And neither am I. Because we can be here and we can proclaim the truth and we proclaim what's right and yet none of it being real in our own lives. Here's the third thing. Spiritual complacency always erodes spiritual reality. It erodes spiritual reality. What happens is I become so complacent that I, I claim to what's true, but what's real is not even a part of my life. Oh, we can gather together and say, yes, I affirm the truth of God's word. Yes, I affirm it's important to read the word of God. Yes, I affirm it's important for corporate worship. Yes, I raise my hands. Yes, I worship him. Yes, I support the ministries of the church. But there's no change in me. And it's not real. And what Amos is saying is this. It's not enough that it's true. It's got to be real. And sin is serious to a holy God. It always is. It grieves the heart of the one who made you, who called you, who adopted you, who redeemed you, who knows you. Because with great privilege, there's great responsibility. So he lays out the privilege, he lays out the problem, but now it gets worse, I hate to tell you. He gives the punishment. He gives the punishment for unfaithfulness. Now Amos is preaching to the people of God 2,700 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago. And yet, what I find, his words are so striking to our own culture and where we are. And in this message, he, he lays out basically four specific things. Now, God loves his children. God will never disown his children but he will discipline his children. Why? Because our Heavenly Father refuses to let his children act like a bunch of spoiled brats. He will not. He loves us so much that he will discipline us for holiness. And when God brings the punishment on Israel, it is for the purpose of bringing them back to his heart. And here's one thing we need to understand, that while God does not annul his covenant with his people, he does remove the blessings of the covenant when they walk in disobedience. And what God is about to do is tell them the blessings that are going to be removed. And when the judgment of God comes, there are certain things that we need to understand that are always true. I'm going to give you the four things, and we're going to read through the rest of this chapter very quickly 
Then I'm going to make some practical application at the end of it. Number one, the judgment of God is certain. God's judgment is certain. Amos tells them that it is in verses 3 through 8. Notice how he puts it. He uses seven questions to affirm the certainty of God's judgment. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Does a a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Of course not. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Of course they are. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Of course it's true. And then he goes on and he says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. We've already saw that. that God always warns before he judges. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? He's saying, listen, judgment is certain. It is coming. And just as these things are true, so the judgment of God is true. And it will be true on the people of God. Now he says, the lion has roared, but he hasn't growled. There's a difference. When the lion roars, it is acknowledgement of his presence. When the lion growls, he has his prey. And God is roaring, but he's given you grace to come back to him. I want to tell you, for our own lives, as children of God, God is watching over our lives. His desires that we walk in holiness and purity. His desires that we'll be perfect, even though we can never be perfect but it is to pursue that. And many times the Lord gives us warnings, and yet in the midst of that is His grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to repent and to come back to Him. But here's the second thing. The judgment of God cleanses. God's judgment always brings cleansing in one of two ways. Here's how He puts it, verses 9 and 10. Proclaim the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see that the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Now, when we read this, we're thinking, what is he talking about? Let me give you the historical setting for this. Here's what he means. The people of Samaria were very proud people. Their city was built on a mountain and it overlooked a valley. And they thought they were secure, they thought they were safe, they thought they were strong. But around Samaria were other mountains. And on these mountains were the strongholds of Ashdod and Egypt. And on these taller mountains, they are looking down in Samaria. And they're looking at the people of God speak truth, but no reality. They were seeing the offenses of God's people. They were seeing the injustices of God's people. They were seeing the oppression from God's people. They were seeing the sexual immorality of God's people. They were seeing the self-righteousness of God's people. And what is God doing? He's using pagan nations to declare the sinfulness of the people of God. And God uses this to bring cleansing in their lives. Listen carefully. Let me relate this to our day. The world is looking at the church. And we might speak about the great truth that we know, but we're not living it. 
And it's the world that's looking into the church and bringing the judgment upon us. Yeah, they say this, but they do this. They say this, but they do this. Oh, yeah, they say they love everybody, but they hate these people. And on and on, and the accusations come upon the church, and the world is judging rightly the body of Christ. When judgment comes, it does one of two things. God's judgment purges the fake and purifies the faithful. You hear that? God's judgment will purge those who are fake believers, but it will purify those who are faithful. I've seen it in people's lives. You've seen it in people's lives. People who claim to be Christians, but they go through a crisis. All of a sudden, they jettison everything they've ever believed, and they walk away from the things of God. God has purged the church. But then there are those true believers who go through the same difficulties. And what God does, he uses those things to purify them. He burns off the dross of their lives where the Father sees only his reflection in them. He purifies. And I would say that when we go through difficulties and when persecution hits, this will always be the test for those who are truly God's and those who are not. And I will say this, I believe our nation is on the verge of judgment. I believe the church is on the verge of persecution like she has never seen. And I believe that such persecution and judgment will bring a purging to the bride of Christ and a purifying for those who are truly His. And you will see what will happen. Our culture is already hostile towards Christianity and is growing all the more every day. I think about when the candidate, Kavanaugh, was being examined for the Supreme Court and they accused him of being immoral. And now we have a new one being examined for the Supreme Court and they're accusing her of being too moral. And we're going to see in this process hostility and you're going to see purging or purifying. When God brings judgment, it does those two things. Here's a third thing. The judgment of God brings, us, brings consequences. The judgment of God brings consequences. He lays out the consequences in verses 11 and 12. Let me just read them real quick. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. He's saying there are going to be consequences. Assyria is coming in. And Assyria is going to come and destroy Samaria. And here's what Syria is going to do. And we know this happened through history. Assyria came in, destroyed Samaria, took off all the rich people, the elite people, the wealthy people, took them to Assyria. They left the poorest among them in the land. And all that was left was a piece of a couch or the leg of an expensive furniture and everything was taken. I find it ironic that the people who were oppressed, the poor, were the very people who did not have to go into exile. But the people who oppressed them did. 
So there are consequences. Here's the fourth thing. The judgment of God removes false confidence. God's judgment brings about a way that it removes false confidences. They had their confidence in two specific things. Verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. Verse 14, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Let me stop right there. You see, when Jeroboam came in and took over the northern kingdom of Israel, he did not want any loyalty from the people to be back to the people of Judah. He didn't want the people of Israel to go to Jerusalem and worship. So he created two alternate altars. He created an altar in Bethel, and he created an altar in Dan. And on those altars, he formed these golden calves. He should have known better. Did he not read Exodus? And yet he makes these golden calves. He puts them on the altars. He brings in a compilation of false worship of Baal mixed with that. Then on the altars, he built these horns. And the horns were a symbol of strength, and the horns were a symbol of sanctuary. And if a person is in trouble, the thought was you go to the temple, you grab hold of the horns, and you will have divine intervention. Whatever struggles you're going through, whatever difficulties, whatever enemies, grab the horns and you are safe. And God says, no, you won't be. Those false worship that you have, I will cut the horns of the altar off and you will have nothing to hold on to. So don't count on your ritual. Don't count on your routine because it is not going to spare you. And then he goes to the next verse, 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Your summer house, pff, I'm going to wipe it away. Your winter house, how rich they were, I'm going to wipe it away. Your 401ks, no, nope, you won't have that anymore. Your stocks and your bonds, your treasures that you have buried, no, they'll be in the ground for somebody else. You have no confidence in the things of the world. What is he saying to the church here? Your ritual and worship is not going to be a source of comfort for you. Your material possessions in this world will not satisfy you. And the bottom line of all of this, God is saying to his people, presuming on the grace of God while pursuing sin is a dangerous thing. Let me say that again. Presuming on the grace of God while living in sin is dangerous. Because what we do is we presume on His grace even in our disobedience. And we hold this thought that God is obligated to do all of these things because I'm His child. And all along, what's happening within us is a complacent spirit where we might say this. Is it true? Yeah. Is it real? Are the things that I proclaim with my lips a reality with my life? And if it's not, 
that God is speaking to us. Let me, let me just give you a warning here. People want to read the book of Amos and associate it with America. Yeah, that's right. That's where America is. America needs to repent. America needs to get back on track. America needs to return to God. And God is saying, you're missing the point. I'm not talking about the nations of the world. I'm talking about my children. Me. You. And the complacency of our hearts. And what we want to do is we want God to get them when God is asking us the question, is it real in me? So what do we do? I'm going to give you three things that are not in your notes very briefly. Three things that I want to challenge you with to destroy complacency in our hearts. I want you to know that I did not want to preach this message because I didn't even like it. I still don't like it because God has challenged my own heart in it. And this week as I prepared for it, it broke my own heart in knowing the complacency that can rise up within any privileged child of God and lose sight of his great love for us. Let me give you three things. Number one, renew your pleasure for the Father. What does that mean? When's the last time you thought, today I'm going to please you, Father? Every thought, I want to please your heart. Every action, I want to please your heart. Every investment, everything that I watch, everything that I hear, my heart is to please the one who chose me, who adopted me, who redeemed me, who is intimate with me. Seek to please the heart of the Father. Secondly, renew your passion for the things of God. If these are the things God hates, then they should be the things I hate. If these are the things that God loves, then these should be the things that I love. And pursue the passion for the things of God, for his word, for worship, for discipleship, for evangelism, for telling others, whatever it is, let the passions for the things of God drive your life. Thirdly, understand your purpose in this life. Your purpose is not to acquire a great kingdom here. Your purpose is to glorify Him for everything He has done. And if we want our nation right, it begins with doing what God's calling us to do. And that is to destroy a spirit of complacency because the world doesn't want to just know if it's true. They want to know in you, is it real? Is it real? 
If you're here this morning as a believer, God's spoken to your heart. I don't need to say another word to you. It's 12.08. Wow. (laughs) You know what you need to do. If you're not a believer, my friend, listen carefully. If God's judgment rests upon his own people for sin, how much more will his judgment rest on those who are not his own? Yet today, in his grace and his mercy, he has given you the way of forgiveness, the way of adoption, the way of redemption. It's through his son. Because there will be a day when you will stand before him, like I will, and there will be an account for every deed. And the only distinction between those who will live with God forever and those who will be separated from God forever will be what you did with Jesus Christ. Bottom line. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for this word. And Father, you know how I struggled with it all week and how you've broken my own heart over this during the course of the week. And Father, how you've challenged the coldness of my own heart. And the Father in repentance, desiring to please you with everything. So Father, as we submit to you today, may we be reminded, may this message echo in our ears as the privileged of God who have great responsibilities. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.